All right, well, with that, uh, we will turn to the Scriptures, and as I mentioned last week, we're doing a a little mini-series here on the topic of leadership, and last Sunday, we looked at the ultimate paradigm for leadership that is given by the Lord Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 20, as He deals with the age-old problem of human ambition, even even among His disciples, and in response to their desire for greatness and to be in positions of power, Jesus delivers that ultimate statement on leadership in verses 25 to 27 or 28. So what I want to do this morning is actually is, is to look at, uh, at an example of the rejection, the failure to implement that teaching. And we find it from the pen of the Apostle John, one of those who is at the center of that delivery by Jesus back in Matthew 20. Remember, he and his brother James had put their mother Salome up to requesting of Jesus the position at the right hand and the left hand of of Jesus when he comes in that kingdom. And so this is interesting that this, uh, this instance, this description in 3 John comes from the pen of John. And he writes of, a, of a, a bad boy in the New Testament, we could say, of a man named Diotrephes. And it's to this man that we're going to look this morning, Diotrephes, and look at what leadership looks like when it is counter to the paradigm that Jesus has given us. We could call this the Diotrephes Syndrome. The Diotrephes Syndrome, and we're going to see what this syndrome looks like in, in six particular characteristics. And we could say it kind of as a subtitle to our sermon, Six Characteristics of Abusive Leadership. Uh, six characteristics of the kind of influence or ministry that a person demonstrates when he fails uh, to, to follow Jesus' paradigm in Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to find that from 3 John, and, and one of the things, obviously, when we get to 3 John is 3 John is, is just not very often a, a topic or a focus of our study. It is the, the shortest book in the entire scriptures. If you count up the, the Greek words, there's 219 Greek words, which makes it a few shorter even than 2 John. Philemon, which is also considered to be a, a short letter, has 330. 35 words, and even in the Old Testament, Obadiah has 440 Hebrew words. So 3 John ranks as that very, very short letter. It escapes our attention because of that, but also 3 John is one of the most situational letters that we come across in the Scriptures, written to a very, very specific circumstance, uh, a particular individual with a very practical matter. And so in light of that, it, it just escapes our attention. We don't typically turn to Third John for any of our proof texts. It is a light on doctrine, certainly when we compare it to even Second John, but First John or the Gospel of John, or even compare it to a letter like Romans, Third John just doesn't have that. Philemon has some very, very powerful teaching of forgiveness. Third John just doesn't seem to bear that weight, and so we just don't often look at it. So what was the purpose of, of Third John? 
And, and what is that specific situational circumstance that John writes to, to, to address? And we could summarize the, the purpose of Third John in these three things. First of all, he writes to encourage this man named Gaius to continue his display of generous hospitality to traveling missionaries. And so when I read the letter in just a moment, you will see that. John is very encouraged by Gaius and what Gaius is doing as a partner in the ministry. Secondly, it is to warn about this bad boy named Diotrephes and to warn Gaius of his destructive opposition to the mission. And then thirdly, third John is written to commend the letter carrier, the one who brought the letter most likely, a man by the name of Demetrius who was the next in line, sent by John, the next in line to be received by Gaius and to be helped on his way as, as Demetrius was undertaking uh, on John's behalf some kind of ministry there in, in the region. But as I said, it's, the brevity and the practicality of this letter lead uh, many to, to uh, treat Third John as just not that important uh, in our New Testament and in our study of God's will for our lives. But we remember, especially when we think of 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, that all Scripture is inspired, and, and, and that inspired nature of a letter like 3 John makes it profitable for our reproof, for our training, for our correction so that we would be adequate for ministry. And certainly, Third John helps us, as we're going to see, in accomplishing that endeavor. In fact, even from a, a historical standpoint, a missionary standpoint, Third John stands as one of the great missionary documents of, of the New Testament. It gives us a little bit of insight into what was happening at the end of the first century as the, the last apostle was still alive and still engaged in the mission given to him by the Lord, we see what that ministry looked like. We have a, a, a window, a, a snapshot of a particular element, particularly as it related to the sending of missionaries. And so we won't get it too much into it today, but really, as we talk about missions and we think about the New Testament teaching on missions, Third John is a critical letter in that regard. The Apostle John writes this letter, as best as we can tell, the date obviously isn't given in the letter, but as best as we can tell, it was written around 80-95, just a short time before John would be exiled to the island of Patmos. It comes near the end of, of his life. By this time, John is ministering in Ephesus, and as he ministers there in Ephesus, he is actively sending out missionaries. John is an old man by now. And what he's doing is, is actually what the Apostle Paul regularly did, send out emissaries, send out delegates, missionaries, to go uh, to, to different towns and cities and regions and, and minister the word. And that's what John was doing from, from Ephesus. And as he does that, John solicits the help of other Christians to, to go from the mother church in Ephesus to these far-off places, they would walk. This wasn't a time of airplanes and trains. Uh, this was all by foot. You'd walk about 20 miles a day, and the Roman roads in those days were, were being well-developed, and 
usually around every 20 miles or so, there would be a little outpost or, or another town strategically placed within walking distance, and that's where you would find lodging. And certainly, you wouldn't just lodge out in the open if you could prevent it. It was pretty dangerous to do so in, in those days. So John solicits the help of believers who lived in those towns, who could receive the traveling missionaries, take care of their needs, supply them with food and water, a place to stay, and enable them to be refreshed before they went on to their next, uh, their next city. Now that said, let's look at Third John then, and let's read this letter and see what John writes to Gaius. Third John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, We ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with, with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now this morning, as we continue our our look at the topic of leadership I want us to focus our attention on the middle verses here in this letter, verses 9 and 10, and, and look at this as to an, how a negative example instructs us. And remember that all things in Scripture have been provided for our instruction, and even these portraits of these bad boys enable us to learn of what to avoid. For example, we see that brought out very, very clearly in verse 11. This is why John writes about Diotrephes when John says, do not imitate what is evil, but what, what, what is good. And so as we look at this example this morning, our, our takeaway from this ought to be to run from this syndrome. It ought to be to examine our lives to see, do these characteristics that we will study 
these descriptions, do they exist in my life? And, and I'm not just addressing this to those of you who may be in more significant, notable levels of leadership in ministry. Perhaps you know, your name is, is on the list when we put up the Bible study uh, uh, list of Bible studies, and your names are up there as shepherds of those Bible studies, or you're on the list of deacons for the church, or, or what have you. This is not just addressed to you. This is addressed to anyone who would seek to be useful in the Lord's ministry, anyone who seeks to have an influence, and we all ought to, to strive to be instruments in the Lord's hands for the sanctification of others. So as we think of that, and as we think of the things that the Lord has given us to do with our lives, we need to look at what we read of Diotrephes, the characteristics there that are described, to run from those things and instead imitate that which is good. So now, as we look at this example, we'll see that John provides us with six characteristics, and these are those characteristics. First, we're going to see that this abusive kind of leadership, this abusive kind of influence, begins with an obsession with preeminence. We'll see that at the beginning of verse 9. Secondly, it, it extends then to a disrespect for authority. We'll see that also in the second half of verse 9. We'll see that it includes a propensity to slander. Fourthly, it, it, it involves a, an aversion to sacrifice. Fifth, we'll see manifest in diatrophies a need to control. And then finally, an intolerance for dissent. Let's go through each one of these six characteristics now uh, to learn what we must avoid. Number one, an abusive style of influence, an abusive kind of leadership is marked, and this is most innate, this is most perhaps even hidden, it is most internal, it is marked by an obsession with preeminence. Look at verse 9, and, and what John says at the very beginning of, of verse 9 as he transitions from the thanksgiving that he offers for Gaius now to deal with the danger of Diotrephes. He says this, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them. Now, what does it mean that, that John wrote something? What is that? And scholars have speculated about what that something refers to. Some have said, well, that's, that's got to be Second John. John wrote Second John, but Diotrephes does not accept it, something like that. And that's a little far-fetched for numerous reasons. We won't get into those. But when we look at all things, including the way that John refers to this letter, this something, he, he refers to it with language that suggests it's, it's really not a big issue in and of itself. What is the big issue here is the rejection of it. Most likely, the letter was another kind of recommendation letter that John, as he sent out these missionaries, gave to them as they departed from Ephesus a a letter of recommendation, similar in wording to what we read of Demetrius in in verse 12. Just a a short letter that, that said, this man who is a stranger to you is being sent by me, you know me, and I attest to him, give him whatever you would give to me. So the recommendation letters in those days were, were very, very important. And it's likely that John had sent this with some traveling missionaries, and they got to Diotrephes, or, or the city where Diotrephes was, and Diotrephes received the letter, but then rejected it. 
John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them. Now, the issue with the lodging in those days was very critical. There were things like hotels that you could stay at, but the hotels were very, very unsavory places, infested with vermin and all kinds of other vices. It was not a place where Christians would want to stay. The only other option, really, was then to go to the marketplace in these towns, the center of of city life, and ask for a stranger to to host. That was part of the culture in those days, that the the Greco-Roman culture prided itself in that hospitality would be granted even to strangers. But the problem here is that in the accomplishment of the mission, these missionaries did not want to accept the hospitality of pagan strangers. Their homes would be filled with all kinds of pagan practices and idols and those kinds of things. It was not exactly the most comfortable place to be in. The the whole environment of that family would be oriented around some particular god, and so the, 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 the believers did not want to be in that context. In fact, we see that even back in verse 7, where John says, they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That's not an ethnic uh, reference there. The gen- term Gentiles refers to pagans or unbelievers. They did not accept help from unbelievers for this sacred task. But as we look at this further, and we look at the name Diotrephes, we we realize on the one hand that we don't really know much about Diotrephes at all. The most we can tell about his background is that this is a very pagan name. The name Diotrephes comes from two Greek words, dios and trepho, which, which means nurtured by Zeus. Nurtured by Zeus. So whoever gave Diotrephes' name, obviously, were were those who revered Zeus. So Diotrephes, if he is a believer, he's obviously in a Christian context, has come from that kind of background. Uh, I think we have a flood warning that's sounding right now. Yeah, so we'll we'll maybe leave time for everybody's phone to go off, (laughs) signaling that more than a tenth of rain has fallen in Los Angeles County. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, California, now we can, you know, we, we're the land of earthquakes, forest fires, and now we can add hurricanes, so we've, we've got it all. Diotrephes came from, from a pagan background, but we don't know anything more than that, other than what John includes here, middle of verse 9, and it's a very interesting way of stating things. If you look at our English translations, because of normal English word order. Notice where Diotrephes' name is located. It's kind of located in the normal place in the sentence, but in the original, that's not where it's located. It's actually located at the end of the clause. So it reads something like this, I wrote something to the church, but the one who loves to be first among them, Diotrephes, does not accept what we say. So before John even mentions his name, he mentions this quality about him, and this quality is, is very interesting. He's called the one who loves to be first. And John uses what is a very rare term. We don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament and was very rarely used external to the New Testament. It really is it's two words that come together, philos and protos, meaning love 
or concern for and first place or preeminence. And so John uses this word to describe Diotrephes in in this way. He is one who has a special interest in being in the leading position. He has a love for first place. He has an obsession with preeminence. And that is this first quality. And it speaks even to something that is not necessarily externally tangible. It's not something that a person necessarily wears on his sleeve initially. It's something that is a characteristic of the heart. It speaks to the the internal affections and drives of a man. Now, what we notice from this, especially when we compare it with what we studied last week in Matthew chapter 20, is that Diotrephes rejected the standard that Jesus had established for all of his followers. Remember, Matthew chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus said this, whoever wishes to be first, and that's the word protos, which goes into that word we just looked at, who loves to be first, same Greek word, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now that is completely opposite to what we see in Diotrephes. Moreover, Diotrephes didn't just reject the teaching of Christ on the issue of leadership, But Diotrephes himself hungered for something that was only to be reserved for Jesus Christ himself. If we look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, for example, we read this, He, that is Christ, is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he is first and he is greatest. He is first in priority, and he is greatest in order. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place. Here's the cognate verb that's used from that same word, protos. He will come to have first place in everything. Diotrephes rejected the teaching of Christ, and even in that obsession with preeminence, sought to take that which was due Christ alone. We can even say this, as as we read this letter, Diotrephes also served as the antithesis to the man Gaius. We saw this in reading verses 5 and 6, that the missionaries who traveled through and were hosted by Gaius returned home. They testified to Gaius's love before the church and how he had given himself to them, as even though they were strangers to him. All he knew was that John had sent them, that's it. There were no familial connections, there were no friendship connections, and so Diotrephes gives of himself. He serves as the diakonos to these men. He makes sure they are fed. He gives of his resources to enable them on their, their way. That was not Diotrephes. Diotrephes manifested this obsession with first place, and we can now come into our context and we must ask ourselves, does this obsession with preeminence manifest itself in my own life? In how I think about my own ministry, whatever ministry that is. Now, how does it manifest itself? In myriads of ways, especially because this is so subtle. It can be in something like the pursuit of titles. I I want to be called certain things. 
especially warning to you seminary students. You, you want the, the, the letters after your name that testify to your achievements. And that can be an example of an obsession with preeminence. It, it can manifest itself in the craving of affirmation and applause. You won't do ministry unless someone is going to, to, to verbally, publicly thank you afterward. You want that affirmation, you want the applause, you crave it. It can also manifest itself in something, again, that's very internal, and that's the constant comparison of ourselves with others. We look at who else is serving, and we compare ourselves. And, and when we see somebody that's doing something better, we don't rejoice that the Lord has gifted that person uniquely for ministry and are thankful that God has given that person to the church. Instead, we wonder why I don't have that. And we beat ourselves up because we don't have the same giftedness. That manifests a, a love of preeminence. Why am I not in that position? It also can manifest itself in pointing out others' inferior standing. So we, we see others, and, 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 and they're underneath us, so to speak, in, in different levels of responsibility, and we have this, this unique delight in making people remember that or speaking to others about it. It can also manifest itself in that desire to be the person who speaks first and last in every conversation. We, we, have, to, we have to make sure that our voice is the one that's heard, and it's the one that's heard most can manifest itself in a boasting of achievements where we go on to different, into different conversations or into social media and, and we tell the world of the things that we sought rather than doing them in secret for the glory of God and the good of the one benefited. We want others to know about it as well. And it can also manifest itself in envying others' accomplishments and rewards. We don't like it when somebody else it gets the, the reward and we haven't received ours. All of those things and many more can, can show that there is this obsession with preeminence in our own lives. It's a mark of the Diotrephes syndrome. And as John says, do not imitate what is evil. Secondly, it manifests itself in a, in a disrespect for authority. This is an interesting uh, characteristic that John draws to, and certainly, anecdotally, we can see this often, that those who have the, the diatrophy syndrome, who on the one hand so much talk about their own authority and want authority for themselves, are typically the ones who are also most anti-authority. That is, anti-authority as it relates to others. There's an inherent disrespect for authority. Notice how John describes diatrophies. He says, but diatrophies does not accept what we say. Now, what's going on there? And it helps to go a little bit deeper into the words that, Diot- or that uh, John uses to describe diatrophies. He uses a very unique word here. The word that we have translated in the NSB, NESB is, is accept. But it's, a, it's a, again, a very rare word. In fact, this word only occurs here in verse 9 and again in verse 10. Nowhere else in the New Testament although related words occur, but not this particular one. So it's, it's rare, and I'll define it in just a moment in, in better words, but we also look at the object of this verb. What is it that is not accepted? And, and we have in our translations a clause that says what we say, and that kind of gives the, the, the gist for it, but literally 
it is, Diotrephes does not accept us. It's a pronoun. Diotrephes does not accept us. So what's going on there? You could look at it this way. The verb accept here is really to be understood as a synonym for acceptance in the hospitality sense, the warm reception of others. Diotrephes does not receive us. John wrote at this letter of commendation, referred to earlier in the verse, for some missionary that he had sent, and that letter requested hospitality, but, but Diotrephes rejected the letter. And understand this, this is a letter coming from the last apostle, one who was closely connected with Jesus Christ. He's described as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Very close personal relationship. And yet Diotrephes has the audacity to receive this letter written in John's hand to know it comes from that last apostle and to reject the letter and to reject the one who bore it and therefore to reject John himself. Remember Jesus' words in John 13, verse 20. Jesus said this as he spoke of his mission and as he tasked his disciples with that mission. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, there is an extension of the person, so to speak, In the sending of these missionaries, John extended himself through these traveling missionaries. Diotrephes hears a knock at the door. He opens the door. There's a man standing there, a complete stranger to him. The man hands him this letter. John, or or Diotrephes, opens it, recognizes John's handwriting, realizes this is a, a commendation letter, and Diotrephes closes the door. It was a rejection of John's authority. And this too is often found in those who manifest tyrannical or abusive forms of leadership. They they love their own authority, but will be often decrying or demeaning the authority of others. they're, They're known for how they belittle the authority of others and even those above them, such as the case with Diotrephes and John. Now, how does it manifest itself in our lives today? Let's think of a few of these as we examine our own lives, and this is particularly convicting. First of all, it manifests itself in wanting to teach, but being taught by no one. And wanting to have influence, but being influenced by no one. And sometimes that's regarded as some great characteristic of leadership, but not in the biblical sense. The best leaders are always those who are hungry to learn and are humble to sit at others' feet. It manifests itself in a a constant readiness to counsel others, but a, a, a refusal to receive it for oneself. So we'll always be ready to tell other people what to do, But when someone comes to us and says, hey, I've noticed something in your life that concerns me, we're quick to to walk away and say, you have no authority 
You can't tell me that. Why should I accept you? It manifests itself in a quickness to correct, but never accepting correction for oneself. It manifests itself in a questioning of the authority of others while while allowing no dissent. In other words, when this kind of a person is in a, a context in which he or she is is under someone else, there'll, there'll be a, a suspicion or a questioning of whether that leader is doing things right, but then when the tables are reversed and the person is in his or her position of influence, there's just no room for dissent. There's no room for questions. It's also manifest in this refusing to lend your hand if it is not your own project. And that appears to be a main issue here in Diotrephes' life. It just wasn't part of his strategy. He had this church, it was his kingdom, and John had his, and John was sending his men, and they just didn't factor in to the strategy that Diotrephes had. And so Diotrephes said, no, I'm not going to help you. And that, that manifests itself today in times when we'll have our own strategy, we know what we want to do, And if someone else comes along and is just not part of the picture for us, and there's a request for help, this kind of refusal or rejection of other authorities manifests itself in our unwillingness to to give up any of our resources to help another person in his or her task. Thirdly, not only does it manifest itself in obsession with preeminence and a disrespect for authority, but... As we move into verse 10, in the next sentence here, we see that the diatrophy syndrome is marked by a propensity to slander. Notice what John says at the beginning of verse 10. He says, for this reason, referring to the qualities he just described in verse 9, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Now, John begins by referring to this as not just something that was a a one-off in, in uh, Diotrephes life. No, this was something which he was characteristically doing. This was habitual behavior. And, and John then describes it further in these words. He is unjustly accusing us. A very fascinating term, the idea of unjustly accusing us, we, we translate that in two words, and the original is just one word, has the idea of bubbles that are coming forth. And it, it has the idea of, of babbling, of talking nonsense, of bad-mouthing. It's the kind of language that is not profitable for edification, but instead is, is used for the exact opposite. That's what Diotrephes was doing, and he was bad-mouthing with wicked words. These were words which were decidedly malicious in nature. He was talking about John and these other missionaries with the specific intent to undermine their authority, to undermine their mission, to turn others against them. And it reminds us of many Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs speaks much about speech. But Proverbs 15 verse 2 says this, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Now that certainly wasn't Diotrephes. But now notice the second half. This is exactly what described Diotrephes. But the mouth of fools spouts folly. That was Diotrephes. And it's particularly noteworthy that, that this is a, a problem that, that manifests itself in leaders. Because if, if you seek to have influence, if you seek to lead 
you're always using speech. It's the most powerful tools that we have in influence. Just think of that. Words, by the way, is how our Lord brought the universe into existence. Words of power. And so leaders and those who seek to influence others must use words. And so here is a particular area where we must be concerned. In James, we heard this a little bit already this morning from Pastor John as he preached from James 1. He referenced James chapter 3, a chapter that's, that's an exposition of the doctrine of the tongue, you could say. And, and in verses 6 to 10, notice how James describes the power of speech. He says this, quote, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. But this is exactly what Diotrephes is doing. We look at it and we see on the one hand, undoubtedly he was using his mouth to bless the Lord. And yet on the other hand, with that same mouth, he was cursing John and John's missionaries. As I said, speech is always a danger, and the Diotrephe syndrome, though it begins in the heart, will manifest itself eventually in speech. And this toxic kind of, of slander, this toxic kind of leadership which harnesses words, can manifest itself in our own lives in, in some of these ways, and I'm sure you can think of, of many others. But number one, just think of it this way, that that this kind of syndrome manifests itself in, in, in kind of a disrespectful, swaggering speech, the way we, we speak of others, particularly other authorities in our lives. But we'll, we'll have this disrespect, this bravado in how we, we talk about so-and-so. It'll manifest itself in misrepresentation and exaggeration when we're describing other people in, in this subtle sinister effort to undermine their authority and to claim it for ourselves will misrepresent the positions of others, will exaggerate what they've done or not done. It also manifests itself in how we can sow seeds of suspicion, of seeds of sedition, when we seek to, to cast little, little tiny words which just can be that impetus for someone else to question the legitimacy of another person's ministry. It manifests itself in direct slander. Leaders, even highly placed in the church, can, can easily fall into direct slander in, 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 in speaking of others if they are not careful and conscious and intentional in voiding this syndrome. Reminds us, Again, of the power of the tongue and, and the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, verse 21, a proverb that all of us do well to memorize. Death and life 
are in the power of the tongue. That is power. Death and and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. There's a fourth characteristic that John describes here of Diotrephes, and one that we can put into this overall portrait of, of this Diotrephes syndrome. And it's found a little bit later on in verse 10, where John continues, and he says this, Diotrephes, not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And this fourth characteristic we can call an aversion to sacrifice. An aversion to sacrifice. Diotrephes was not satisfied even just with bad-mouthing John and and his missionaries. Instead, it had to go further. He he was not content simply by undermining them. He needed to take it even further. And John says he himself, that is Diotrephes, himself does not receive the brethren. Diotrephes not only rejected John and the letter that John sent, but he also rejected the, the very brothers who carried it. Now, there is a place, of course, we know that We must separate, we must not receive, accept. It's an interesting parallel here that we find in 2 John. 2 John verses 9 and and 10 and 11, just turn the page over. Here we find a, a letter also on the topic of hospitality, but a little different from a different perspective, but still from the pen of John. And John warns the lady that, to whom he wrote, and he said this, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he is both the Father and the Son. And then he says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So in 2 John, John says, listen, if someone comes to you and they do not share our doctrine, they do not, they do not express biblical teaching, but have some skewed, heretical, unorthodox view of things, do not help them. Do not. Do not give them a greeting. Do not use your resources to help them on their way. Uh, Several times I've been approached by, um, by Mormons, Mormon missionaries, and uh, I remember quite distinctly in, in Samara being approached by Mormon, uh, American Mormon missionaries in, uh, in Samara, Russia, and, uh, you know, we stand out, we're, we're Westerners, and so you can tell them from a mile away. And, uh, you know, they'd come up in the park or, or at the local McDonald's or something like that and want to talk, and... And uh, when we would find out what they were doing, and you see the little elder badge uh, that they would have on their shirts, uh, I would try to tell them they're heretics, and they needed to repent, and uh, they wouldn't take that so easily, but then they try to be nice and try to say, well, okay, you do your thing, and we'll do ours, and extend the hand and say, well, we're both involved in in in, in the same thing anyway. I'd refuse to shake their hand, and they'd get offended. And I'd say, no, there's no way that I'm going to agree with you in anything, even to the extending of a hand, when you say that you're in the same mission as I am. You're not. You're teaching heresy. 
And John says there is to be no participation, there is to be no sacrifice of resources to help them on their way. Now, the problem with Diotrephes, however, was that Diotrephes did what John calls for in 2 John, but not to those who had unorthodox doctrine, but to those who didn't fall into Diotrephes' own strategy. He himself does not receive the brethren. And again, this verb receive here is the same one we saw back in verse 9. It speaks of of the receipt of someone, the acceptance of someone into your own presence in a friendly manner, in a way that, that would show of your willingness to sacrifice, to give of your needs for their betterment. The diatrophies refused, refused to accept these brethren. He refused to, to sacrifice of his own time, his own food, his own lodging, refused to do it. And that kind of disregard for the needs of others was a grievous sin to the Apostle John. In those days, hospitality was of such an important factor that it's commanded numerous times. And this isn't just the kind of hospitality where you invite someone over for a a football game or something like that. No, this was the definite need of a place to stay because of the options that were out there or the lack thereof. If you wouldn't accept a, 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 a traveling stranger Christian into your home, they didn't have a lot of options other than, as I said, to go into the infested hotel or to go and stay with some pagan who is going to do sacrifices in the courtyard of the house. So Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And that's a, a particular reference to Christians who are strangers, those who are not part of your family circle, those who are not part of your friendship circle, to whom you feel like you owe something and, and you want to help them, but those who are strangers who have no say in those kinds of things. The writer says, do not neglect to show them hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And again, this, is, this isn't, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with putting on nice place settings and watching a, a hockey game together. Hockey is pretty good, though, but <laughs> that, that's, you know, it's a, it's a really good thing to do to someone is to invite them to watch hockey. But that's not what's in view here. The idea is to sacrifice of your needs to someone who is in need, to be particularly sensitive uh, to the practical, concrete needs that others have. The Greek word hospitality, although it, doesn't fi- it isn't found in 3 John, the concept is there, though. But if we look at the, the idea of hospitality in the Greek, it comes from two words. That same word, philos, which we saw back in verse 9, love. Remember in verse 9, diatrophies manifest a love for first place, but hospitality is a love, philos, for strangers, xenos. So diatrophies, instead of having a love for strangers, had a love for himself, and this is what we find among those who have this diatrophies syndrome. There's only so much love that a person can show, and when it is all focused on self, there will not be a love for strangers. When the love of first place dominates, there will be little concern for sharing of your needs 
or sharing of your resources to help cover the needs of others. And that kind of absence of self-sacrifice certainly marks unbiblical leaders. Again, we come back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 27. Let's look back at that statement and see how Jesus called upon us to to sacrifice for the the good and well-being of others. Jesus called the disciples and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Two terms which had a lot to do with the household setting, servant and slave. The servant was the table waiter. He was the one who ensured that everyone else in the house was fed first before he would partake. The slave was the one who had no rights but existed for the benefit of another. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus envisions. It's the exact opposite of what we find with Diotrephes. Speaking of this this need for leaders and those who are going to be active in influencing and serving others, the need for them to manifest this self-sacrificing spirit. Here's a great statement by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, quote, Let us remember that we are servants in the Lord's house. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Let us be willing to be doormats at our master's entrance hall. Let us not seek honor for ourselves, but put honor upon the weaker vessels by our care for them. In our Lord's church, let the poor, the feeble, the distressed have the place of honor, and let us who are strong bear their infirmities. He is highest who makes himself lowest. He is greatest who makes himself less than the least. Convicting words from prince of preachers. A fifth quality that we find in Diotrephes is the need to control. We see that near the end of verse 10, where John writes this about Diotrephes and his actions. He says, and he forbids those who desire to do so. He forbids. And the the idea here is that Diotrephes is doing something in order to prevent others from showing hospitality. Others were also receiving these letters of recommendation, and Diotrephes was doing his part to make sure that no one else in his circle, no one else in his kingdom would be extending hospitality to these missionaries. The word forbid has both the the idea of verbal prohibition. Maybe it was that Diotrephes was sending out these missives to all his congregations saying, do not accept these missionaries. Do not welcome them into their home. Or the term forbid can even have the idea of some kind of actual physical restraint. You know, we don't know what it exactly was and what, it, what level this for, forbiddance was is not really important, but you can almost see that Diotrephes would be going and checking in the houses of the people in his congregation to make sure there's no one there from John's tribe. And if there was, Diotrephes would go in and kick him out. You can't be here. You don't have my approval. This was, this was Diotrephes' approach. 
in order to, to justify his own refusal to implement Jesus' words and the practical request from John himself, in order to justify that refusal, Diotrephes went to the, to the level of controlling people in his own congregation, making sure that they would do exactly as he did. And once again, this manifests itself commonly among abusive leaders, those who have an abusive, tyrannical kind of influence. Think of it this way. It it manifests itself in things like this, an emphasis on strict conformity in matters beyond doctrine. Now, we, we get second John and the need to faithfully implement the prohibition that John gives against helping any who are unorthodox and unbiblical in their preaching of the faith. We get that. That's not what's going on here. Instead, this abusive leadership manifests itself in this this penchant for strict conformity in, in applicational matters. This is how I apply the truth, and you must do it too in the exact same way. So I, we, we just, we, we've, we've got to do it this way. It's got to all look the same. It, it's got to feel the same. It's got to be described the same way. It also manifests itself in that tendency toward micromanagement where you've just got to control everything. There's no room for allowing others to be creative in how they do their ministries. Instead, you want to nitpick, and so you give the agenda, you give all the details, you just decide all the, de- the decisions for them. It's micromanagement. It's the need to control. It's also manifest by a a constant fear of losing control. And so, you know, at night you you, you can't sleep because you're afraid someone is is stepping out of the the boundaries that you have established for them and you're worried. And then that leads to this effort to, to make sure that everybody understands they cannot do anything apart from your approval. But we must recognize this. Biblical leadership does have influence. Biblical ministry, whether it's in, the, in more recognized positions or less formal positions, the influence comes not from demands, not from the, the, the requirement of conformity, where it's a heavy top-down approach, but biblical influence always arises out of the attractiveness of godliness. The moment that you have to enforce somebody to follow you is is the moment you've lost because godliness and the power of character and integrity are inherently attractive. And that is the tool we must use for influence. There is a sixth characteristic here, and it comes as the climax of Diotrephes' actions It's this, it's manifest in an intolerance for dissent. An intolerance for dissent, not only uh, an an aversion to sacrifice and the need to control, but an intolerance for dissent. At the very end of verse 10, we find uh, the final touches of, of Diotrephes' actions. He puts them out of the church. He puts them out. The verb that's used there is also a verb used in John chapter 9, to refer to what the leaders of the synagogue did to the blind man whom Jesus had healed. They put him out, John 10.34 says, or 9.34. They put him 
out. And and this isn't the kind of separation that comes as as a fulfillment of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, that there is a time when we put people out. Jesus commands it. Matthew chapter 18, that after a process of of reproving and, and begging to repent, to acknowledge sin, that the that the unrepentant sinning brother or sister must be put out. Or you read it in Titus 3, verses 9 to 11, the one who is divisive in the church must be put out. You read it in 2 John, that the one who, who has false doctrine must not be accepted in. There must be separation. But here, Diotrephes' excommunication was over faithfulness and good conscience. Believers who are seeking to be faithful to the Word of God and live with that clean conscience were being put out. And it is this sixth characteristic here, and it shows the progression as this love for self and preeminence began in the heart and now manifests itself in this tyranny that is done to others where there is this absolute lack of concern for the spiritual state of others. Just put them out. Put them out. Such a, a heart, a love for self, when it's allowed to gestate, eventually will lead to a point where that leadership exercises tyranny upon others. Well, these are the, the six characteristics then. An obsession with preeminence, a disrespect for authority, a propensity to slander, an aversion to sacrifice, a deed to control, and an intolerance for dissent. And with that, we come to the next verse here, and this is where John takes it. As he writes to Gaius, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So let's think of these six characteristics and consider the opposite. These things are to be mortified in our lives, so what must be vivified? What must be made to grow in the place where these things used to grow in our lives? And so in in the place of an obsession with preeminence, we, we need to cultivate a selflessness, a love to be last. In the place of a disrespect for authority, we, we cultivate a submissive spirit, one that has no problem but delights in acknowledging the authority of others. In the place of slander, we cultivate a kind of speech that is affirming in nature, always using our speech to build others up, seeking to, to speak compliments, to see the good things, and, and to speak on those things, rather than always gravitating quickly to the, the infirmities and inadequacies of others. Fourthly, in the place of this lack of sacrifice, we, we cultivate a, a sacrificial spirit where we hold on to our resources lightly and let them be used for the good and need of others to satisfy their needs. That spirit of generosity. In the place of this need to control, instead, in it, in it we cultivate an enablement where we seek to, to, to be used by the Lord to enable others to do the kind of ministry that they're set out to do with the gifts and the knowledge and experience that they have. We recognize it's, it's not our kingdom. 
We recognize it's not our agenda. Instead, I just want to be used for the Great Commission work to enable other people to do what God has designed for them to do. And sixthly, in the place of that tyrannical intolerance for dissent, we exercise graciousness. We exercise patience. We fear having to use any kind of means to drive people away and separate, and instead we exercise grace. As we close, we'll pray about these things, but I'll just make this note. As I was studying, I came across a set of questions that uh, Dr. William Barrick, who used to teach here at the seminary, had put together in response to these verses. They're on the slides, and I won't go through them. There's 10 of them, but they're really helpful. What I encourage you to do once the audio or once the slides get uploaded onto the website is download the slides that are always there and look especially at the end and look at the penetrating questions that that Dr. Barrick has put together and uh, examine your own heart and take this text even further. Uh, but let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to change us in these ways. Heavenly Father, we are certainly convicted when we read this text. Uh, superficially, we, we can laugh at, at the kind of characteristics used to describe diatrophies, and yet when we look into our own lives... We see ourselves way too often like Diotrephes rather than Gaius. So, Father, we pray you take this negative example of what to avoid and that you would sober us to our remaining sin in our life, the flesh which so seeks to have preeminence and instead... We pray that you, as you reveal these things and convict us of these things, that you would convince us of the need to flee from these things and instead imitate that which is good. And of course, as we do that, we're brought back to the example of your son, Jesus, who said in his, of his first advent, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. We pray that that would mark us, especially as we look at a new ministry year ahead of us. May that resemble all of us to one degree or another. We ask this in his name. Amen.